we are still very much in quarantine and because of this the questions of so many people is what holds us when hope is at its lowest magaanim na buwan na po ang ating quarantine mga kapatid and um, the trust of the Filipino people towards our leaders seem to be almost gone maraming disillusionment sa napakaraming tao so what holds you together in moments like this I'd like to speak to you today and I pray that today's word will be so relevant to every one of us as it has spoken unto me in so beautiful ways. Uh, before the lockdown happened, sometime March, my wife and I, Rose and I, and our kiddos, we had our trip to Binondo to have our breakfast with Brother Jimmy and Sister Diane. Salamat ulit, mga kapatid. And the primary reason why we went there was Natanggalan po ng isang bato yung wedding ring ng aking asawa. One diamond. And so we had to go to this store where we bought it from. And they had to make some arrangements because that was a precious stone that was lost. And when we were given the quotation how much it would cost us to have that stone replaced, it talagang laglag po kami sa aming mga kinauupuan. And that made me ask again, why is diamond so precious? Why is it so expensive? I used to think when I was younger na kaartihan lang ng tao yung mga diamante na yan. I always thought that kaya naman nagmamahal ang mga diamonds na yan because the vain people are so much willing to, to put so much value and pay for that value. And that's why by law of supply and demand, the, the prices are so jacked up. Until Many years back, I had the privilege of, of visiting Israel along with some of the Lighthouse family members. And one of our stops was at this diamond shop, a diamond cutting shop in Israel near Jerusalem because we were informed that one of the top industries of Israel is diamond cutting. They don't produce diamonds, but the precious diamonds from different parts of the world are transported to their country to have it cut. And the 30-minute video film that they showed us made us realize that really diamonds are formed out of the earth's mantle. And they are brought out through volcanic eruptions. That it takes no less than 2 billion years for the diamond to be formed. And that's why diamond is the hardest substance, physical substance, that this planet has ever produced. And there I was reminded that really the value of a certain gem can only be determined by its rarity. If it takes you about 2 billion years to be formed, then you must be expensive. If you have been, if you have been subjected to all the pressures of the weight and the, and the heat of the planet Earth in the crust and the mantle of our planet, and then you have to be spewed out through volcanic eruption and you had to be ground and you had to be polished just so we can have that tiny uh, bright thing in your ring or your earring or in your necklace that justifies the price and the value of the diamond and so as I was going through Google a few days back I came across this poster that says on your difficult days when the world is on your shoulders remember that diamonds are made under the weight of mountains. That there must be a reason why 
life or God allows us to bear the weight of the things that we are going through right now. Maybe because God is making diamonds out of us. And so today, I, I am launching a new sermon series for the five Sundays of August 2020. And we have aptly entitled this, Solid. And our own artist in our light, in Lighthouse, Ms. Celine Lozare, came up with this beautiful imagery of diamond, a beautiful diamond. Because the question that begs some pondering upon is the question that says, how can our lives be diamond-like? Paano kayang magiging katulad ng diamante ang ating buhay? Nakakayanin natin ang lahat ng init, lahat ng bigat, lahat ng pagsubok ng buhay, and we still come out, and we still come out of every challenge sparkling and shining bright like a diamond. This will be our sermon series, our study series for the next five Sundays. And if you may, sundan niyo po kami mga pastor because we will be preaching on this. Would you kindly review the story of Moses in the book of Exodus? Because Moses is one of those great leaders that, that went through the pressing, the crushings of life. And yet, the entire book of Exodus had been dedicated, even Deuteronomy has have been that book has been dedicated for the honor of this man that has been of great use in the hands of the Almighty. How can we be like Moses? If you have your Bibles, kindly now open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7. This is a discourse of Stephen, the apostle Stephen, as he was being grilled and interviewed by the Sanhedrin just before he was stoned to death. And Stephen gives for us a good summary of the story of Moses. Acts chapter 7, let's start reading from the 17th verse. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At the time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, 
An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord, the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. The reading of the word of the Lord. For today's first installment of this series, I have entitled Solid Sovereign Plans. Let us pray. Father, when times don't make sense to us, when questions and prayers seem to go unanswered after all these months of quarantine, and what we see, the things that we see are quite the opposite. Cases are rising. Death toll is rising. Hunger index is going up. Movements are still very much limited and we're still very much in this battle against an invisible enemy. Today, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that you show us your solid, sovereign plans for your people. So that, Lord, even in the midst of the things that we don't understand, we will remain solid in our faith. For only in that faith shall we be pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, would you now speak to your people in ways only you can. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak now in your own special way. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Solid, sovereign plans. As we were reading this, Acts chapter 7, the summary of what the account of the Bible about Moses, it starts, with that narrative in verse 17 that says, As the time drew near for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham. Stop there for a while. Sometimes the limitations of our human minds when we read through the Bible, and that's the reason why we cannot truly appreciate the full counsel of the Lord, is oftentimes we read the Bible chunk by chunk. Sure, Anywhere you go, even if you do page cutting in the Bible, as some Christians are in the habit of doing, if you chance upon a certain verse, it can encourage you. Why? Because the Word of God is inspired and breathed by the Holy Spirit. But for us to have a good and deep appreciation of the full counsel of the Lord, it is imperative, it is important that we know that the Bible is one continuous story. Magkakadugtong po ang kwento ng Diyos sa Biblia. Meron siyang sinimulan at meron siyang tatapusin. So if we watch a movie in the middle of it, and we don't know the context of where the movie was coming from and where it is headed to, we will be misled. If not, we will not appreciate what the story of the narrative is all about. If you'd like to appreciate that which Moses went through, we've got to appreciate as well that it is in continuation of the promises of God to Abraham. And if you would like to understand and appreciate what God did to Abraham, then flip 
backwards, go back to the book of Genesis. So today, allow me to present to you the common thread, or my teacher in orality would say the meta-narrative, the, the theme that binds the story of the Bible, because if we appreciate the overall theme of the Bible, then we will appreciate the parts that compose it. Agree? Now let me show this to you in pictures, because pictures paint a thousand words. We know that God created the heavens and the earth. From the first day to the second day to the third, the fourth, and the fifth, God just created this in all perfection. He set forth the law, the laws of physics, so that on the sixth day, the earth would be habitable. The oxygen was just in the perfect level, and so that there will be vegetation, and the animals are so much available for the apex of His creation that would soon be created. And God said, let us create man in our own image. And so you would see now in the narrative, Adam frolicking in the garden, but then the Lord says, it is not good for him to be alone. And so he gave Adam the perfect help meet in Eve. Such a beautiful start for how long it took, how many thousands of years it took, hundreds of years it took. We don't know, but we know this. My artist friend, Orville Ultego, drew this for me, that Adam and Eve and God, they just had this perfect fellowship, hand in hand. The Bible would say that Adam and Eve would now frolic in the garden as they would hear the footsteps of the Lord being with them. How, how much more beautiful life could be, huh? When you have the very presence of the Lord with you in everything that you do. But just like any other movie, there's always a backstory to this. As to the debate, if this backstory happened at the same time as God was creating the earth and the universe, or did this happen millions of years before that? There's a good time to debate about it. The, but, but the backstory is this. In the heavenlies, in the spiritual unseen world, where the angels would worship the Lord with all their might, there was this most beautiful creation of an angel. His name was Lucifer. And the Bible is filled with so many accounts about how beautiful this angel was. And uh, historians and scholars would say even that Lucifer was probably the chief cherubim and the chief worship leader in the heavenlies. But then the book of Ezekiel would say that wickedness was found in the heart of Lucifer, and that's why he was cast out of the heavenlies. His heart became proud, and on account of his beauty, he got corrupted by his own wisdom because of his own splendor. And so the Lord cast him out and threw him along with all the other fallen angels that got deceived by Lucifer, now called Satan. And now they found themselves on the created planet of the world. Now the two realities intersect. Lucifer and the fallen angels were very much around us, still are. And now Adam and Eve, in the perfection of what God has given them, and Lucifer, the deceiver, Satan, the liar, the accuser, managed to break not only the heart of Adam and Eve, but he won, he succeeded in breaking the very heart of God. Why? Because that is the intent of the devil. Jesus would tell us that the devil has come to kill 
to steal and to destroy that, that scheme, that plan, that motivation of Satan has never changed throughout these thousands and thousands of years. Satan knows that he cannot defeat God. Lucifer knows that he cannot outwit the Lord. So what does he do? Everything that God loves, the devil hates with all his gut. And every creation of the Lord, Satan is intent in destroying it, in wrecking it to pieces. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. And yet, even now as we know the story of the fall of mankind, the Lord in His grace would tell us that even as the Lord was rebuking Adam and Eve and rebuking the serpent, the Lord already set forth in motion His plan of salvation. The Lord says, I shall put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and He will bruise you in the head. And historians and prophets and scholars would now agree that this is the very first prophetic utterance of the Lord to foretell the coming of His Son to finally vanquish the works of the evil one. And Genesis 3.21 would now tell us that the first sacrifice was done by God Himself in the Garden of Eden. That He had to slay, He had to kill probably a lamb so that the nakedness of Adam and Eve would be covered. Amazing, isn't it? That even if God had every reason to castigate, to curse, even to kill and permanently end the lives of Adam and Eve because of their rebellion against God, and yet the Lord sacrificed a life just so man could be covered. It is a foretelling as well of the coming of the Lamb of God. And then the history of mankind, as we now know, just continues to unravel rebellion after rebellion, disobedience upon disobedience. But God is incessant in His desire to redeem, to restore the fallen masterpiece that He had begun in the Garden of Eden. And so He chose another man, and his name was Abraham. And He promised Abraham that He will make him into a great nation. And that I will bless you, he says, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And because of Abraham, Isaac came forth, and Jacob came forth, and that was the birth of the nation of Israel. But even as he was covenanting, as he was making these promises with Abraham, God already spoke to Abraham, and he said, your descendants will one day be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and they will be mistreated for 400 years. God must have seen, mga kapatid, that whenever a person is given a chance at affluence, when life becomes easy, when richness is all around us, when life is of no trouble, the propensity, the proclivity, ang tendency ng taong magkasala at humiwalay sa Panginoon ay mas malakas. Kaysa sa mga taong dumadaan, you can very much relate to this, I believe. And that's why in the sovereign plans of the Lord, pain and afflictions are always part of the narrative. And so He purposed that now as He chose the nation of Israel to be a people dedicated unto Himself, that this nation of Israel will never be, would never be exempted from the pains of life. As a matter of fact, he already foretold that for 400 years, they would go through some purging in a foreign land. 
And yet, the Lord set forth His redemption story because He says in Genesis 15 that I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And after the time had been served, they will come out with many possessions. This was a prophecy for the, for the nation of Israel. Now, did this happen? Before I proceed, Albert Einstein was quoted once by saying that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. I think Pastor Albert would say it is God working on the backstage. When things seem to be falling, and you can just say, maybe it's coincidence lang yun. Nagkataon lang na nandun ka. And yet, because God is sovereign and His plans can never be thwarted, God allows these seemingly coincidental events in your life to happen. God allows all of these things to fall into place. And sometimes they don't make sense yet, just like when you're trying to put on puzzle pieces, right? You don't see the whole picture, but God is there remaining anonymous because He knows. The chief antagonist, the devil, is also very much intent in finishing off the human race, in tarnishing forever the masterpiece of the Lord. But God always has higher ways and His thoughts are always better than most of us, than all of us, including that of Satan. And here is where the story of Moses now falls into place. Moses, as our reading today would suggest, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. His people, the Israelites, as Stephen would say, were now languishing in Egypt. When Joseph the dreamer, that used to be a prime minister, died and many pharaohs came to power, there came a time that the pharaoh didn't know anything about Joseph. And he started castigating. He started making the lives of the Israelites very much miserable. He became jealous. This Pharaoh became jealous of the sturdiness of the Israelites, the intelligence, the innate intelligence that apparently was a giftings of the Israelites. Again, when I was in Israel, our Israeli tour guide would boast that of the 900 Nobel Prize winners so far that had been produced, in our present times, 20% of them are Jewish people. Of course, the greatest number are Americans because they are 250 million in population. But he said, but hey guys, remember, Israel only has about 10 million population, but we have produced 20%, almost 200 of the 900 Nobel Prize winners in chemistry, in science, in physics are Jewish people. The Pharaoh saw this, and he got intimidated. What if they grow in number, and they just rebel against us? And one day we'll just wake up, and the Israelites, the Jewish people, these Hebrews, would now be taking over the powers of the Egyptians. And so, what did they do? They summoned all the Hebrew midwives, and the Pharaoh gave the midwives a strict command. A straight command. He says, from this moment on, every time a Hebrew woman gives birth, if the child is a boy, kill that boy right there and then. If it's a girl, go ahead. They don't care about girls during the time. They care about the boys because the boys carry on the legacy and the name of their forefathers. But of course, the Hebrew midwives 
could not do this. And so they launched the, the very first recorded civil disobedience ever. They did not follow the Pharaoh in his evil schemes. And they just reasoned like, ang lakas talaga ng mga babaeng Hebrew. Before we could arrive in their house, the baby is already out. Of course, we could not murder them in plain sight. And because of that, the Pharaoh changed his rule. I like all the Hebrew boys, the baby boys, to be rounded up and be thrown and drowned in the Nile River. First case of genocide of babies at that. Under that chaotic environment, under a murderous, homicidal, genocidal Pharaoh, Moses was ushered into this world. Acts 7 would say, and that's why he was no ordinary child. Because he was birthed right in the middle of the furnace of the afflictions of his very own people. And so I have this picture. How the parents of Moses did everything they could so that they could hide Moses away from the Egyptian soldiers that were now going house to house. So that they could pierce the babies in their bayonets or their spears and draw them all together in the Nile River. So I applaud the parents of Moses, especially the mom. That she had to let go of her child. How painful it must have been, right? But she had to let go of this child. She weaved, she created a waterproof basket and she put her baby there for the baby just to float in the Nile River. Better for her to lose her child to the river than for her to see her child being murdered by the Egyptians. And so the story would go that for days Moses was in that river. But you see, my friends, I've lived in summer all my life when I was a young person. I have always gone back to the hometown of my mom in Las Navas, and they have great rivers in there, mga kapatid. The Katubig River, the Las Navas River. And rivers could be very, very perilous. The currents could be so strong, and just like the Nile River, that river would ultimately end in a delta. Magsasangapuyan, and the Nile River eventually would lead out to the great Mediterranean Sea. The mother of Moses knew this risk. When she put that basket, when she put that basket in there, she knew there was a great chance she was never going to see her baby again. She knew that that basket could go adrift in so many other parts of that great river. One of the greatest rivers in the history of mankind was Nile River, wide and long and powerful. Not to mention the crocodiles and all the other animals that would readily feast on this sumptuous baby boy, huh? And yet... It's not coincidence that on the day as the basket was just floating in that great river, the story would tell that the fairest daughter, the princess of the kingdom, just woke up that day and I don't know how many times in a week or in a month would she decide to go and bathe in the river, but she just woke up one day and she said to her servants, let's go to the river and let's swim. Oh, she could have just commanded all her servants to fill up her bathtub with warm and clean water away from the prying voyeuristic eyes of the other people. But then the day, coincidentally, she woke up and she wanted to take a dip in the river. And voila, now the story would unfold that as she was frolicking in the river, here comes 
the basket containing the baby Moses. Maybe she didn't notice it. But as soon as that cry rang out in the silence of the river, and maybe the, the princess was like, what is that? What is that? And then she saw that basket. And off she ran. And maybe one of the servants swam to that part of the river and got the basket. And she opened it. And it must have been love at first sight. That the Lord made use of the cries of this innocent baby to turn that maternal instinct in that Pharaoh's daughter's heart. She knew, the Bible would record that she knew this must be one of the Hebrew babies. She knew about the edict of her dad that all the Hebrew boys should be put to death. But on the day as she beheld baby Moses, there was something that tugged her heart and she said, she's going to be mine. She's going to be my adopted son. My friends, when we talk about the sovereign plans of the Lord, we've got to grow in appreciation that God can use the seemingly mundane, the seemingly cliche, the seemingly routine events of your life so that the unraveling of the plans of the Lord shall be seen by us. Another cast in this wonderful narrative that God was weaving was the sister of Moses, Miriam. Problem Miriam was crying her heart out, Mom, no, please, don't let Moses go. I'll hide him under the bed or maybe in the ceiling. Don't let Moses go. But her mom prevailed over her and the mom said, No, 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 Miriam, I know you love him. But he's got to go. Otherwise, the Egyptian soldiers are soon going to find him. And so he was there, she was there when baby Moses was starting to drift in the river. But maybe Miriam, as young as she was, probably five or six years old, she purposed in her heart, maybe she was just in the riverbank, and she was there, wide-eyed. Oh no, Moses, where are you going? And she could see that the current of the river was taking Moses to that part of the river near the palace, near that private lagoon that the Pharaoh had made for his daughter. And all of a sudden, she saw that the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of the kingdom, was now holding baby Moses. And the quick wit of Miriam, she came out of those bushes and she said, Hey, hey ma'am. It was quite courageous, right? Because she was a slave girl. She belonged to the slave people, the Hebrews. And maybe she said, Hey, uh, princess, uh, I, I could see that the baby is hungry and none of you girls are, you know, lactating. Wala sa inyong nagpapagatas. Hey, princess, would you like me to find a Hebrew uh, nursing mother so that your adopted son would be fed? It was a risk, right? But you know what? The princess said, Good idea, young, young girl. Here, take home this baby. Find for him a nursing wet mother. That's the technical term for that. And have this Hebrew woman feed this child until the weaning period. Pwede nang mabuhay kahit wala ang gatas ng nanay. And probably it's just about, probably pag nag two years old na ang baby na to, bring him back to my palace and he will grow up 
with me and in my place. Now you could just imagine, my friends, the day before, Moses' family's heart was just being broken to a million pieces. They were saying goodbye to this beautiful child. Just a day ago, just 24 hours ago, they were just crying and wailing and life was just so hopeless. And then 24 hours later, the mom was just probably wide-eyed and maybe she was saying, Miriam, what are you doing? Why are you bringing Moses back? And maybe Miriam said, Mom, God has shown his favor for our family. Moses is now officially the adopted son of the princess. Shh, mom, she doesn't even know that I'm taking Moses back to you, the biological mother. And you know what, mom? My bonus pa. Si duhang ka pa ng princess ng karian. Just for you to mother your very own child. Coincidence? You see, my friends, God's sovereign plans are so wonderful. This seemingly tragic story that began the journey and the narrative of Moses' life is now turning out to be one of the greatest masterpieces of the Lord that no movie director or movie writer could have ever concocted, could have ever thought of. That's our God, my friends. He is a turnaround specialist. And so Moses grew up with the best of both worlds. He grew up in his first developmental years in the presence of his mom, in the comforts and the embrace of his very own biological mom, where probably the mom of Moses would recite unto him the story, the story, the history of the Hebrew nation being prayed over night after night, being dedicated unto God. And he grew up probably being familiar with the faces of Miriam and Aaron. And then probably two years after the king's guard came to the house at Pinapasunduna ng Princesa, ang kanyang anak. And you know the rest of the story. In the first 40 years of Moses, he grew up as the prince of Egypt, where he had the education of all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in speech and in action. When that verse in Acts 7 would say, wisdom of the Egyptian, it must mean that Moses had the privilege of being educated in the Harvards and the Cambridge and the Yale universities and the MITs of that great civilization at that time. When the Bible says he was great in speech, historians would now suggest that Moses was a public leader, that he had a gift of gab, that he had a gift of eloquence. And when it says that he was a man of action, Josephus, one of the extra-biblical, non-biblical scholars, historians during the time, would have actual historical records that would show us that Moses was a man of war, that he was one of the great generals of the Pharaoh's army, especially in Egypt's war against Ethiopia. And so the narrative continues that now Moses, highly educated, greatly skilled, greatly respected, and yet he knew that he was a Hebrew by heart and by blood. And so the story continues that one day Moses was just going around the kingdom and he saw an Egyptian mercilessly beating one of his countrymen, one of his Hebrew countrymen. And you know what Moses did? Instinctively, that patriotic side surged well up 
welled up in him and he started attacking the Egyptian. And because he was a mighty warrior, he killed the Egyptian that day and hid him under the sun. But you see, something was amiss. Patriotism, check. Makabayan, si Moses, pinagtanggol ang kanyang kababayan. Empathy for the downtrodden, check. Skills to kill, to neutralize and maim the enemy, check. Prayerfulness, nope. He was lacking in that area. As a matter of fact, Exodus 2 verse 12 would say, Moses glancing this way and glancing that way and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. You know what was lacking? He looked here, he looked there, but he didn't look up. God, at this time, was still not part of the equation. Moses had this self-prescribed messianic role that maybe he thought that the Hebrews would now acknowledge him to be their deliverer. Why? Because he was on top of all of them. He, he was the one that stood out amongst all the other Hebrews. He had access to the palace. He had good relationship with the Pharaoh and the son of the Pharaoh. And of course, the daughter of the Pharaoh was his adoptive mom. But he was proven wrong. He fell flat on his face because the next day, when he was again going around, going about his business, he tried to put an end to two Hebrew men quarreling with each other. And one of them said, why? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? And now Moses realized that his perfect crime was not perfect after all. And now he was being pursued by the soldiers of Egypt because he murdered an Egyptian. And because of that, all of a sudden, in one flick of a finger, he fled to Midian and he settled there as a foreigner and life changed for him in just one moment. Just like the COVID times, my friends. We were having our great start of 2020. And January came, and Taal volcano erupted, and February came, and he said, Happy Valentine's, and life will be better now. And March came, and maybe the second quarter of the year will be so much better. And then March 15, we were locked down with the government, and until now, we still are. Life can change in a heartbeat. Moses' life was never the same again. He had to travel far and wide from the comforts of Egypt, where he was, to Median present-day Saudi Arabia. He had to traverse the great wildernesses so that the long arm of the law would not be able to catch him. And so he had a change of address. And in that, in that place, nobody knew him. He became married to one of the local girls. And for the next 40 years of his life, from 40 years old to 80 years old, Moses became a humble shepherd. Little did he know that God was subjecting him. God was schooling him in a master's degree, not in MBA, not in business administration, not in Christian leadership even, but in masters of character acquisition. And he had four core subjects that the Lord had to take him through for 40 years in the desert, the subject called intermediate loneliness. When all of a sudden, his life of affluence was changed into a life that is dry and arid and austere. A life that was lacking in so many physical things. 
God had to enroll him in a subject called advanced obscurity. Whereas in Egypt, everybody knew him. Everywhere he walked, everyone just knew him. But here, he was an obscure person. Even the girls who were in the well that he helped out didn't know him at all. Jethro, his father-in-law, an Arabian, didn't know him from Adam. Advanced obscurity. Little did he know that he would have to pass a subject called Deep Humility 103. And he would have to be master at selfless service 104. Sometimes life hands us a card, just like in a poker game. And you pretty much consider that as a bad hand. Pangit naman ang barahang binigay sa akin ng laro naming posoidos. But as our gamers would tell us, it is how you play the hand. Life can hand you all these seemingly sudden misfortunes, loneliness, obscurity, humility, humiliation even. But it's in how Moses had to play the hand, how he would allow God to now shape him and mold him into becoming the man that he was destined to be. Even though at the time, unbeknownst to him, that God was raising him up to be the chief deliverer of the people of Israel. And so, the narrative continued that during that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And in their cry for help, because of their slavery, it went up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That's the message of the Lord for someone watching today. It may seem like this life has had so much sufferings, more than you could ever bear. Somebody texted me a few days back, Pastor, ano, ano bang ginagawa ni Lord sa akin? Capitalized word. Ano ba? A man that is now, his back is against the wall. And he couldn't just understand why these things, these tragic things are happening, are being permitted to happen unto him. But now, the comfort of the Lord comes through His Word that God does hear our cries and that God does remember His covenant with His people. And, I, and as I said a while ago, unbeknownst to Moses, he was the main man God was raising so that His plan would now unravel to the people of Israel. But there's a footnote that I'd like to go to first in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Because it says that now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Of course, contextually, Numbers 12 was written when they were already in the desert. They already crossed the Red Sea. But it's noteworthy to realize that indeed, the 40 years of staying in Midian did its intended result, delivered its intended result in Moses. It humbled him. It took Moses out of the hubris that he might have had when he was still the prince of Egypt. It took Moses, it took out from Moses that pride, that excessive self-confidence that he had when everyone was bowing down unto him because he was with the prince of Egypt and the pharaoh of Egypt and because his mom was the princess of Egypt. It took him out of that. It gave him a good glimpse of who he really was, how limited he could be as a person. And when the right time came, at 80 years old, Moses had a classic burning bush experience. When all of a sudden, in the middle of his busy day, as he was shepherding this flock 
of Jethro, his father-in-law, all of a sudden, woo, there was this burning bush, bush. Fire was coming out of this bush, and yet the plant was never consumed. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You see, God had to say that verse. Why? Because their God, He's a God of continuity. He's a God whose narrative from Adam to Cain and Abel to Noah and now to Abraham and now to Moses, it's one long story. Maybe there had been mishaps along the way, but as God now would talk to Moses, He says, I am the same God that spoke to your forefathers. And therefore Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed sinned the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. The cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now Moses is seeing the puzzle pieces of his life falling into his rightful place. He wanted to, to be the deliverer of Israel when he was 40 years old, when he had a power, when he had a might, and we had the education, and we had the network, and he had the influence. But God said, no, the median interlude was a necessary thing. If only that humility shall be deeply ingrained in Moses' heart. My friends, could it be that this COVID times is that median interlude for all of us? Could it be that before COVID, the world was just continuing on and on and mindful of the depravity that is now eating us up? When even Christians, when even Christian leaders were already being gobbled up and eaten up by the system of materialism and pride when there was now competition as to who's got the biggest building and has got the biggest following and has got the biggest likes and shares in Facebook and Instagrams when Christianity had now become or has now become a competition amongst ministries and churches. Could it be that COVID is a great awakening? The great correction, as we said a few months back. So that when we are in our median experiences, when we suffer loneliness, when all of a sudden we don't have the benefit of having the audience right in front of us as I am now preaching in this hollow hall of Lighthouse Christian community. It's just Mary Grace and Elisha right in front of me. Even the Levites have now left. It's just me and these two ladies. Could this be a good time for us to be reminded by God that when everything is stripped, when everything is taken away, would you still believe that the great plans of the Lord are still unfolding? Would you trust in the sovereignty of God? Will you still trust in the hand of the Lord that guides us and, and orchestrates and puts us where He wants to put us, to put us because He's got a greater plan ahead of us? And that plan can never be fully revealed unto us if there's still an element of pride and self-centeredness that is left in us. My friend, 
let me just wind down this message by saying that God has great plans for His created world. This world that He has created with His might, the man, humanity that He has created after His own image, this very humanity that has been corrupted and sabotaged by Satan, but He has great plans for His created world. And at the center of this plan are His plans for His people, and that means it includes you and me. Pastor Jonathan, in his exhortation a while ago, would say that God's plans for us are for our prosperity, for our future, for our hope. You're very much part of this. And it's important that we bring ourselves to this realization, especially when times don't make sense. Especially when the chaos seems to be just keeps on going on and on and there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. Know that the plans of the Lord include you and me. But also realize that the outcomes of our individual and collective stories will largely depend on our willingness to obey God's moment-by-moment leading. What will 21 look like? I don't know. What will 2025 look like? I don't know. The realm of the future is a future, is a realm that belongs to God alone. Hey, what does tomorrow look like? Monday, August 3. Nobody knows. But this I know. God has plans for us. Our role as a people is to abide in His plans, in His leading moment by moment. That is His will for us. It is never His will for us to try to guess and to have some conjectures of what the future might look like because at best, it's just an educated guess. Trends, graph, maybe because of this, it will happen like this. But hey, the experts of this world have fallen flat on their faces because I remember 2020 started with all the pundits of Wall Street singing and preaching that 2020 is going to be the greatest year economically. Today, Wall Street is empty. So the will of the Lord for us, my friends, is to make sure that every moment we incline our ears towards Him. And moment by moment, we obey His leading in our lives. And thirdly, to know that the big plan of the Lord is to deliver His people. It is always front and center of His great plans for us, the plans for deliverance. Number one, from the clutches, from the clutches of the tyranny of sin that we have enmeshed ourselves in. That's the reason why Jesus Christ had to come to this world. Because apart from the grace of the Son of God, apart from the death of the Son of God in Calvary, we will still be and we will forever be imprisoned by sin. God had set forth that someday the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That's what Jesus did when he died for us in the cross of Calvary. And the story is not finished yet. That is what Jesus will do when one day, hopefully soon, he will come down from the heavenlies on his second coming. And he will vanquish the great serpent and the great dragon. And he will throw Satan, the greatest adversary, into our soul, into the fiery pits of hell, there to languish forever and ever. And the Bible will tell us that our destiny is to restore the people of the Lord 
unto himself in the new heaven and the new earth, and we shall be with the Lord forever and ever. Sovereign plans of the Lord. How do we practically apply this? My friends, in the next coming days, discern God's plans in your life. Try to have these moments. Total, work from home ka pa naman, right? Total, hindi ka pa naman compelled ng inyong company to report physically in your office. Maybe in your break times, in your coffee times. Try to discern. God, what are you doing in my life? Allow me to see your handprint in the things that you're doing. So that this can be part of my proclamation of my faith story of how good and how faithful you've always been to a person like me. Another thing is, maybe this week, go back to the time of your life when you sort of went ahead of God's plans. Like Moses did. You felt so self-secure. You felt so confident that this is what God is wanting me to do. And you went ahead without the affirmation and confirmation of the Holy Spirit and recall how you fell flat on your faith. And thirdly, gather the lessons that those painful times or adversities have taught you. Gather the lessons of those times when you were just in plain misery. How, looking back now, how it made you into the person that you are today. My, my parents raised me up as a good person, I believe. In our house, there was an abundance of love. In our house, in the Baldo clan, in the Baldo home in Samar, there was an abundance of love and laughter and uh, intellectual stimulation. Not perfect, but it was a beautiful family. I was raised up in an academic community called the University of Eastern Philippines, where my uncles and aunties, even though with no blood relations as I would call them, were academic professors, academicians. Ang tambayan po namin library. And I mean, pastimes, quiz bees, and talent shows. I was surrounded by lolos and lolas and uncles and aunts that poured upon me their precious life stories of tenacity and overcoming. Panahon ng hapon, panahon na walang wala ang pamilya, kung paano naging malakas ang aming pamilya. I was surrounded by stories like that. And so I, I considered myself with good advantage in life. I had a chance even to study in the premier state university of the nation. But you see, what was to my advantage turned out to be my own undoing. Only because as I grew up in my stature intellectually, or even in my stature in life, even in my confidence, God was being excluded in my narrative. Especially so that I took up Paul's eye. And I was under the tutelage, under the mentorship of many Paulside professors that are into dialectical materialism. Paulside professors and economics professors that would tell me that religion is just the panacea of the poor, a tool of the elite, of the oligarchs, so that poor people would not have to rise up in arms and declare a revolution. And so that was my mindset when I graduated from college. And when I went to the corporate world, when I went to the business world, and I had a taste of profit, I had a taste of how it is to enrich myself, my ideology changed. It's one to the other extreme. Now capitalism is the key. No longer socialism that I espoused in my college years. 
And I saw how greed, how materialism had a grip on me. How taking shortcuts was now the norm of the day. How deceiving people was just a normal part of being a businessman. How misrepresentations and concealments are just acceptable practices in the industry where I was in. And off, farther and farther away, I drifted from God. And so you know my story. I fell flat on my face, my friends. It had to take an accident in Edsa for me to know how brief life could be. It had to take for me to see that there was blood in my hands for me to realize that all of this pagyayabang, all of this pride, all of this hubris, all of this puffed up head knowledge could be nothing. Because one day, mortality can come knocking at your door. I've been a pastor now for 20 years. And every day of my life, there is not a moment that I don't implore the grace of God to walk with me. There is not a moment in my life, my friend, that I don't, I don't ask the Holy Spirit to guide me. Even right now as I am speaking, I am praying in my heart that God will supply me the words because I am, I am nothing without the Lord. Galatians 2.20 became my life verse. That now I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live. It is now Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God's solid, sovereign plans. In these times when the pandemic is raging, in these moments when life doesn't make sense, I pray, my friends, I pray that we will remain rooted, yielded, submitted, knowing that this life is but a vapor, knowing that this life is so limited that man is at best a whiff in the wind, here today, gone tomorrow. But you don't have to live a defeated life. You don't have to live a life that is doomsday in its orientation. You can live a life that is free from the burdens and the cares of this world because now you know in all the seeming coincidences of your life, in all the things that happened that sometimes broke you to pieces, hurt you so badly, could sometimes be the very puzzle piece that will complete you as a child of God.